Our next speaker, again, you've already met, is Dr. Joe Iron. He's at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Um, Joe has been um, a leader in antiretroviral therapy really since the beginning of his career. Uh, he is currently the vice chair of the AIDS Clinical Trials Group and will become chair uh, on the next rotation of leadership there. So I uh, can't think of anyone really a lot better to give us an update on uh, new drugs and what's coming down the pipeline. Um, thanks, uh, Mike, and thanks, everybody, for uh, staying awake and attentive, and um, it's great to follow Carlos. That was a terrific presentation. Uh, these are my um, financial relationships with commercial entities. Um, it's also in your, your handout, as Mike pointed out. My uh, learning objectives is to um, uh, talk about new agents. I'm going to go through Deraverine, which is an investigational new NNRTI that's in late-stage development. I'm going to talk about several two-drug combinations that sounds like you guys are already familiar with because of the way you answered questions during Mike's uh, case study. And then I'm going to describe the mechanism of action and potential uses for two new uh, investigational entry inhibitors. Actually, one is uh, recently approved. So one is investigational and one is, uh, one is now recently approved. So this is the outline of my talk. I'm going to start about new agents for initial therapy, talk about new strategies for initial therapy and treatment switch, and I'll get into the, uh, the data we have on the long-acting agents um, uh, uh, that are moving forward actually pretty rapidly in clinical development, uh, talk about some uh, novel agents for resistant virus, and then new agents in uh, much earlier development. So uh, I'm just going to level set. I just, I'm interested in, 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 in what you guys would do uh, with uh, a kind of an average patient. So what, what is your go-to initial antiretroviral therapy now uh, in, in 2018 for someone who doesn't have a contraindication to a specific therapy? Um, so why don't you go ahead and, and, and vote. And, um, I'm more, this isn't obviously right or wrong. I'm just mainly curious about what you're doing in, in your care. So it looks like people are predominantly using um, uh, dalyotegravir-based therapies, um, either two pills uh, or uh, the single tablet dalyotegravir, abacavir, lamivudine. Um, a few uh, uh, use um, uh, boosted PI, a few use uh, elvitegravir-cobi, and then bictegravir-taf-FTC, which is the most recently approved combination um, uh, I suspect will get more use over, over time. Um, I know in our clinic, um, it's in, at, uh, in North Carolina, it's approved on Medicaid and on uh, our, our ADAP or HMAP uh, program, but, but for insurance, it's been a little bit more challenging. Okay. So then one might ask, this, you just picked a bunch of really uh, potent, tolerable, safe, um, and really simple therapies. So what, why do we, what, what's really needed for initial therapy? Um, so we might ask, are there, are there a need for an alternative to, to INSTEs, for uh, alternative to integrase-based therapy? Um, 
there's some suggestion that some of the integrase inhibitors may have uh, some CNS side effects. There's been recent um, presentations and actually a couple of publications about integrase inhibitors and weight gain. So perhaps um, uh, an NNRTI-based therapy uh, uh, might be an alternative for uh, someone like that. Um, for PI-based therapy, we, we know that PIs are, are um, certainly uh, uh, resistant to resistance, um, but they're not very convenient, and, and um, uh, it would be great to have one that had fewer drug interactions. One uh, topic that's getting a lot of discussion now is trying to expose people to fewer drugs. Um, uh, if someone is diagnosed and treated at age 20, they may have to be on antiretroviral therapy for 60 years or 70 years. Um, and so this issue of um, cumulative toxicity and toxicities that we, we can't really predict. Um, uh, so, so two drug strategies are, are being considered. And finally, what about alternative dosing? Mike raised that question in his case study. And, and I think we're gonna get to a place where we can have alternatives to, to one's daily dosing and, and how that would work and some of the really serious questions about how one manages longer acting therapy, uh, I think are, are ones we can discuss during the question and answer period. So this is Duravarine. Uh, Duravarine is an investigational NNRTI. Um, it has some advantages over uh, efavirenz. Uh, uh, it has activity in vitro against um, uh, many of the variants that have single mutations. Uh, uh, that are to the common NNRTI mutations like K103N and 181C. It can be given once daily uh, and uh, uh, without regard to food, and it has a relatively low potential for drug-drug interactions. It's been compared head-to-head um, -head with darunavir uh, and, uh, uh, and was shown to be non-inferior. And then most recently, uh, this past summer, it was compared head-to-head -head with efavirenz, and that's the graph that I'm showing you. Uh, and essentially, uh, I think, obviously, um, uh, 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 deravirine was, was non-inferior to uh, 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 darunavir in this particular case, and then more recently with, with efavirenz. Um, I'm going to go forward and then back. Um, so this is the head-to-head -head comparison uh, uh, with um, efavirenz. You can see that unlike a lot of the studies we've seen with integrase inhibitors, where... Um, uh, we see these uh, percentages below 50 copies at 48 weeks in the high 80s or low 90s. Um, th this um, uh, comparison uh, is not quite as robust. Now, the populations are different. It's difficult to do cross-study comparisons. But you can see that um, the number, uh, the proportion of, of patients that have um, uh, a viral load greater than 50 copies at, at 48 weeks is somewhat higher uh, than we've seen with the integrase inhibitor studies where that, that percentage is between 2 and, and um, 5%. Um, these two regimens were very, very similar in terms of their uh, virologic activity. Um, their uh, protocol-defined virologic failure was actually slightly higher with deravirine than with efavirenz. Um, and there was emergence of resistance. So this is in contrast to the studies of dolutegravir and the more recent studies that were published last summer in The Lancet by uh, Joel Gallant uh, and Paul Sachs, where we didn't see emergence of resistance with the integrase inhibitors. With the um, 
uh, with these two NNRTIs, you do get resistance in the setting of virologic failure. Now, resistance rates are low, um, at one and a half percent, three percent, comparing Duravarine to Afavarins, but you, you can get resistance, and you do also see uh, nucleoside resistance. So again, the, the barrier to resistance of these NNRTIs um, uh, is, is obviously less than our kind of second generation uh, integrase inhibitors. Um, if you look at the safety, and here's where Duravarine has an advantage over Afavarins, and if you focus on the uh, second line, drug-related adverse events, there's almost twice as many drug-related adverse events uh, with Afavarins-based therapy in this blinded study uh, compared to um, uh, uh, Duravarine. And if you look at um, serious adverse events and, and, in particular, discontinuations due to adverse events. Again, there were more discontinuations due to adverse events with efavirenz compared to deravirine. So, um, deravirine is likely a, a step up from efavirenz, uh, uh, but it hasn't been compared to an integrase inhibitor, only to efavirenz uh, uh, and only to uh, Drunavir-Rotonavir. Uh, it will likely be a single tablet regimen, but it'd be a single tablet with tenofovir and, and um, uh, 3TC. I think this slide says um, uh, uh, N, uh, because those are, are generic. Um, and so um, uh, that will be at a disadvantage if, in terms of um, uh, uh, renal protein uh, loss and, and bone mineral density. So where this will exactly fit, I'm, I'm not 100% sure. Um, also, uh, we will have a single tablet protease inhibitor. This is the AMBER study. Uh, this is a combination of darunavir, cobacistat, FTC, and TAF, all in a single tablet. Um, it was compared head-to-head -head with darunavir, uh, cobacistat, TDF-FTC, uh, and uh, you can see the results on the, uh, in the center graph. Um, again, uh, similar to the studies we've seen with integrase inhibitors, we did kind of reach this 90% threshold, uh, and, it, and you can see that uh, virologic non-response or virologic failure Viroloads greater than 50 uh, were, were less common, so 4% and 3%. And not surprising, emergence of uh, protease inhibitor resistance uh, was very uncommon in, in this particular study. Um, the, the pill, actually, I've seen the pill. It's actually smaller um, than a, a darunavir cobacistat tablet, so it's, it's actually somehow they were able to compress it further. Um, and this uh, agent, this combination single tablet has been available in Europe since September, uh, since they have different regulatory uh, uh, considerations than, than we have here in the U.S. And the um, likely availability date is probably sometime uh, the middle of this uh, summer. Um, and what we know basically with boosted PIs, and now they're literally uh, uh, thousands of patients studied on boosted PIs in treatment-naive setting, and the emergence of resistance is very, very uncommon. And um, this is obviously true for integrase inhibitors. I think the one subtle difference between integrase inhibitors and boosted PIs is in if the, when you give a, a person a boosted PI monotherapy, which I'm not recommending, uh, it doesn't always lead to sustained suppression, but it rarely reads, leads to resistance to the boosted PI where we know with dolutegravir, at least, when you, 
when people have tried dolutegravir as monotherapy, you do see emergence of resistance. And, and the, while I don't know that anybody has an exact explanation for that, I think it might have to do with the PK uh, curves of these drugs with uh, dolutegravir having a longer uh, kind of uh, PK tail, where the boosted protease inhibitors tend to uh, relatively rapidly uh, drop off in concentration. So if people are missing doses, there may be less time uh, uh, with um, under that tail that leads to uh, resistance. Um, so what about two drug therapies? What's the rationale? So uh, I, I think about 10 years ago, all of us talking heads talked about nuke sparing, nuke sparing, and I think when we had a Bacavir, TDF, and AZT, um, it made some sense to talk about nuke sparing. I, I think with TAF, it's a little different. There's a much broader uh, window for renal dysfunction, so creatinine, creatinine clearance is down to 30 with TAF. Um, so um, the reason for nuke sparing, we hit a couple this, this morning or, uh, with, the, with the case series, but it's really probably people that are, have advanced renal disease or um, are tenofovir or abacavir intolerant. Um, there are people that argue that we should just use less so we can minimize exposure. And, and there may be a cost advantage, obviously, to having fewer drugs. And there have been several different strategies. Boosted PI plus an integrase, that's obviously not a very convenient combination and, and has weaknesses that I think we know about. Boosted PI plus 3TC, I'll show you that that works. But, but again, you have the boosting agent. You have the um, uh, potential cardiovascular issues with um, and lipid issues with the boosted PI. And then finally, dolutegravir 3TC, which would be a convenient um, initial therapy, but obviously two drugs, one of which has a, a, a low genetic barrier. Um, so this is um, uh, the ANDI study. This was a, a comparative study of darunavir, ritonavir. Actually, as a single tablet, this was done in, in uh, South America, uh, plus 3TC compared to darunavir, ritonavir, plus uh, TDF, 3TC. And you can see um, uh, visually that these uh, this relatively small study, the, the two regimens did almost exactly the same, uh, and there was really no difference in the high viral load group. So I think we have now multiple studies, even as initial therapy with a boosted PI uh, plus 3TC giving um, adequate uh, initial results. But it's hard for me to see exactly how that fits into the patients I'm currently caring for. Uh, an, another strategy is dolutegravir plus 3TC. Um, it's been studied in a very small study called PADL, um, uh, which was, um, uh, again, also done in Argentina by Pedro Khan. This was a larger study done by the ACDG. It was a single-arm study uh, of 100 and, um, 120 uh, uh, patients. Uh, approximately a third had to be uh, above 100,000 copies viral load, and basically at 48 weeks, about 90% of, of patients uh, remained uh, below uh, uh, 50 copies. So again, very similar to uh, a three-drug regimen, though obviously this was not a comparative trial. Um, this shows you kind of the rates of viral load suppression. Obviously, the higher viral load didn't suppress as quickly, uh, but um, they both ended up uh, approximately in the same spot at, at 24 weeks. Uh, but there was this cautionary patient that actually came from our site who um, uh, kind of went on and off therapy. So, so the blue line is the viral load. Um, the red line is um, uh, uh, 
uh, dilutegravir concentrations. And you can see that he uh, originally was quite adherent. His viral load fell quickly, uh, but then he looks like he stopped therapy uh, and then uh, maybe started therapy again, but wasn't as adherent. And what you can see is not only did he select for the M4V mutation, um, but he also selected for um, the signature uh, dilutegravir mutation, the R263K mutation. Um, that was lost when he went off, um, and he went on to a boosted PI therapy and eventually um, uh, uh, regained uh, suppression of his virus. There are two large randomized trials um, that are fully enrolled. They're called Gemini. So they're two very similar head-to-head -head comparisons of dilutegravir 3TC with dilutegravir TDF-FTC. The 48-week time point has uh, passed or is about to pass, and it's possible that we'll actually see these data uh, this summer in Amsterdam at the International AIDS meeting. So in, in those studies, so those are large, fully-powered, blinded, randomized studies, um, if dolutegravir 3TC was non-inferior to dolutegravir TDF-FTC, how much resistance would you tolerate? So this is the question. Would you say there has to be no resistance, it has to be just like uh, dolutegravir two nukes, or I'm okay using less drug if there's a, a few cases of um, 3TC resistance, um, and then on down the line. So, so go ahead and vote and, and tell me what you would accept uh, in this head-to-head -head comparison. Obviously, if it's non-inferior, then we, it's, we won't accept it. But if, it's, if it is non-inferior, how much resistance, if any, would you be willing to tolerate? So go ahead and vote. about smooth jazz. I'm not a big smooth jazz fan. Yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> but I am really curious to know what you guys think. That's interesting. Yeah, I actually feel the same way. I really think that... that um, you know, resistance is kind of a permanent adverse event, right? I mean, if someone develops resistance even to 3TC or FTC, that's kind of a permanent adverse event. Um, I, I guess if there were a few, like one or two out of the 600 people develop 3TC resistance, maybe that would um, uh, be acceptable to some. Um, but, I, but I think it really, um, uh, uh, our therapies are so effective that I think we need to be very careful. And, and you could also argue, if um, dolutegravir 3TC works as a suppressive therapy, why not use three drugs to get the person suppressed? Uh, and then uh, they still have a whole lifetime to be on two drugs. So there are some new strategies for switch. I'll just mention uh, this single tablet protease inhibitor that I mentioned before was looked at in a switch study. These were people that were either on adizanivir or darunavir with TDF-FTC, and they were randomized to switch to the single tablet, and, and you can see that it worked. The thing that was different about this study than almost every other switch study is people that had virologic failure previously, as long as they didn't fail darunavir, and as long as they didn't have a known darunavir resistance mutation, were allowed to switch. So, so this is different than many of the other switch studies that we've seen where people couldn't have previous virologic failure. 
Um, and if you look at the people who had virologic failure versus not, there really was no difference. Uh, the therapy, uh, what we're looking at here is the proportion of people that had two viral loads consecutively greater than 50, and there really was uh, no difference. And uh, many of these patients had been on multiple regimens in the past. Um, as I mentioned, they could have had virologic failure or they could have switched therapy without failure, and you can see it really didn't matter the number of drugs that a person was previously exposed to. Uh, the virologic failure over that 48 weeks was actually quite low. Um, we do know that um, uh, Bictegravir uh, has been, Bictegravir TAF FTC has been examined in two switch studies uh, in, at ID Week last year. Uh, it was uh, presented switching from uh, a boosted PI to Bictegravir TAF FTC. This is a switch from uh, dolutegravir, a back of ear 3TC. So again, kind of standard randomized trial um, uh, with people either being randomized to switch or stay. And you can see that um, obviously uh, the uh, people did very well. We should have a very high bar for these switch studies. They're now basically based on virologic failure rates um, that are less than 4%. That's the non-inferior cutoff. And you can see in this study, there was only one person that stayed on dolutegravir that had um, a viral load greater than 50 copies and only three out of uh, 282 on bictegravir. So bictegravir certainly is a, a safe and effective uh, switch strategy. Uh, and we've had there are a lot of different two-drug switch therapies. Uh, this is a list. Um, we also talked about uh, uh, dolutegravir ropivirine, the SWORD study, which was published, I think, in February of this year. Um, so we do certainly have uh, strategies for simplification and switch. Um, there are um, strategies looking at dolutegravir uh, uh, 3TC in switch, and there's a large randomized uh, trial called Tango, um, which is, uh, I think, enrolling or may have just uh, completed enrollment. Again, looking at the simplification to dolutegravir 3TC. Well, what about long-acting therapy? What's on the horizon for long-acting therapy? Um, it's a combination of an integrase inhibitor, which is cabotegravir, which I'm, uh, uh, Susan uh, mentioned this morning. So it's a long-acting integrase inhibitor that is similar in structure to dolutegravir, though not identical, in combination with uh, uh, rilpivirine, a drug you're all familiar with that's also long-acting injectable. These are very long-acting drugs. A single injection of cabotegravir, you can actually detect drug a year later. The same for rilpivirine. So they're very long-acting drugs. That doesn't mean they can be dosed once a year, unfortunately, because the, there's a very long tail. So this is a randomized trial. Uh, it's a phase two trial, so it's large, but not, not uh, phase three large. And, and uh, uh, participants had to uh, be naive to antiretroviral therapy and have a, a CD4 greater than 200. And they um, uh, first started on cabotegravir at Bacavir 3TC. So they actually were on oral therapy first, and they had to suppress. So this is a maintenance strategy. This is not an initiation strategy. It's a maintenance strategy. For the four weeks prior to starting the injectable, they actually got oral ropivirine. Carlos mentioned that earlier today. Um, uh, that is to um, expose them to ropivirine in an oral form to look for any toxicity or tolerability. And then they were randomized to injection. So there were three arms. One was just to stay on oral therapy, and it was a two to two to one randomization. Uh, and uh, the two arms were either cabotegravir or ropivirine every four weeks or cabotegravir or ropivirine every eight weeks. And uh, so there are about 115 
individuals in each of the uh, injectable arms and, and uh, 56 in, in the oral therapy. And after 96 weeks of injectable therapy, so this is uh, approximately two years of, of injections, you can see all the way to um, the um, uh, left of the slide is the every two week therapy, so 94% sustained suppression. Every uh, one week, uh, so every two months, sorry, uh, injectable, uh, 94%. Every four weeks, 87%, and then the oral was 84%. On the every four-week injectable arm, there were no virologic failures. On the uh, every eight-week, there were um, uh, several virologic failures, one in particular uh, where uh, resistance emerged to both ropivirine and to uh, cabotegravir. Um, so this is now going forward. There are two, again, two large phase three studies testing every four-week injectable compared to oral therapy. And then now enrolling is a study called ATLAS 2M, which is a comparison of every four weeks with every eight-week injectable therapy. These are IM injections. They're in the gluteus medius um, and uh, have to be administered by a healthcare worker. So, and we can talk about that during the question and answer. Well, what about therapy for resistant viruses? What, what do we have um, uh, that we might be able to use in people that we aren't able to suppress? The good news is, even, even in my clinic, and I have quite a few patients that have been referred into me for treatment of resistant viruses, I have very few patients that aren't suppressed. And the, most of my patients who aren't suppressed are people that are having trouble navigating their therapy, not because they have multidrug resistant virus. But there are two new agents. One was just approved, ibilizumab. The other is in development, fostemzivir. Ibilizumab actually is a monoclonal antibody that's infused every two weeks, um, and it blocks the virus by binding to CD4. So it doesn't bind to the virus, it binds to CD4. It doesn't inhibit CD4 function, but it prevents the virus from, from entering the cell. Fostemzivir is, is also an entry inhibitor, but binds to the virus envelope, so it uh, uh, binds to the virus, but also prevents uh, CD4 binding and, and therefore uh, uh, cell entry. Ibilizumab um, uh, is a, a monoclonal. Uh, it is active against both R5 and X4 using variants. It wouldn't be expected to have any cross uh, resistance with any other therapy, including uh, Maraviroc or, or um, Enfuvertide, um, but it's an IV infusion. It requires a uh, two gram uh, loading dose and then 800 milligrams every two weeks. Um, it is actually uh, well tolerated and it is approved based on this phase three study of 40 patients. So it's a phase three study of 40 patients. Um, it's been around a very long time. I actually have a patient that's been on it for almost eight years. Um, and in this phase three trial, basically they just demonstrated that it had antiviral activity. So for the first seven days of the trial, uh, uh, the uh, uh, participants got uh, only uh, ibilizumab plus their old therapy. And in th that seven day period, uh, most of the patients um, had a greater than uh, 0.5 log decline in, in their viral load. And then at um, uh, uh, day 14, they went on to optimize therapy. Uh, and, uh, and over the next 24 weeks, viral load uh, fell in, in about half the patients and stayed below 200 copies in about uh, 50%. And then more recently, they showed 48-week data 
which showed a persistent effect in a subset of patients that uh, uh, continued on beyond 24 weeks. So it definitely works. Um, it requires partners to be effective, um, but it is a, an infusion. Um, and it was approved on March 6th, so um, a little over a month ago. Fastemzavir also studied in a similar way. Uh, instead of um, uh, doing a, a, a week-long run-in and then the IV infusion, uh, they actually did a randomized trial where they either got blinded, uh, uh, fastemzavir or placebo for seven days, uh, and then went on to optimize background, provided they had one at least one active drug, or there was a non-randomized portion when patients with no active drug where they just got fastemzavir. But the same idea, let's prove it's active for seven days and then optimize therapy. And this drug also um, was active over the first seven days compared to placebo. There's about a 0.8 log decline uh, versus a, 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 a non-significant decline of uh, about 0.02 log uh, in the uh, placebo group. And again, uh, for those individuals that had at least one active agent, uh, between 57 and 70 percent were below either 50, 200, or 400 copies over uh, the first 24 weeks. Unfortunately, those individuals that had fewer than, um, had no fully active agent, the likelihood of complete suppression was, uh, was less, with about, again, about half of those patients uh, sustaining uh, viral load less than 50 copies. And uh, it's, I don't know exactly when this drug will be approved, uh, potentially, uh, hopefully maybe by the end of this year or the beginning of next year. And then I just want to mention, David mentioned EFDA or MK8591. Uh, this is a, it's a uh, nucleoside that also uh, prevents translocation. So it's a NRTTI. Uh, and uh, it is incredibly potent. So the graph I'm showing on the right is a single dose uh, given one time, uh, and, and then it suppresses viral load over a week to 10 days. So the single dose, the lowest dose there is 0.5 milligrams. So 0.5 milligrams given once suppresses viral load by more than a log for seven days. Um, so this sets up the possibility of e giving either extremely low doses um, or because the drug is so potent, um, uh, you can formulate it in an uh, uh, implantable device potentially uh, because the amount of milligrams you need to get in that device, device is relatively small. Um, and, and there is a, um, a study, actually a phase 2b study, uh, in combination with deraverine and 3TC, where they're giving 0.25 milligrams a day. Um, it's possible that this could be a once-weekly oral therapy. The issue is that partners are wanted. There has to be a partner that has a similar pharmacokinetics. So this is a drug that is really looking for a partner that could be given uh, potentially uh, as infrequently as once per week or maybe even once per month. Um, and then... Um, it can be formulated in these uh, delayed release, um, the, like Implanon and Nexplanon, the, the uh, contraceptives that are those simple rods that are placed under the skin. And these are data um, from um, an animal study. This is a rat study where a single uh, extended release injection uh, produced um, uh, concentrations above the IC90 for um, over, uh, over 150 days. Um, 
I'm going to skip that because David talked about. There's a capsid inhibitor. This is something that works very differently uh, that's in development by um, uh, 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 Gilead. Uh, this particular uh, agent is, um, probably won't be orally formulated, but also is extremely potent. And again, perhaps could be given at very low doses or given over long-acting uh, 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 deposition. And then finally, I'm just going to quickly mention these broadly neutralizing antibodies. You guys are in the home of broadly neutralizing antibodies with the, the Vaccine Research Center uh, and John Mascola, um, who's helped develop many of these antibodies. These are very potent. You can, I can, you can just think of them as very potent drugs, essentially, um, that um, are uh, uh, active against uh, most strains of the virus. They, like our very potent drugs, they may, they will almost certainly need to be given in combination. Actually, uh, 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 an antibody has been created that actually has three different heads. It's called tri-specific, so it's a single antibody, but three different binding sites. Um, and the thing about that makes these interesting is that they can be modified to be very long-acting and could be, and they would almost certainly be an infusion, maybe IV or subcutaneous, but as infrequently as once every six months. So there, there is the potential, I think, with these broadly neutralizing antibodies uh, to be used as therapy. I, it's, uh, I think it's something that's um, uncertain, but something that, that we can certainly think about and perhaps look forward to. So thank you very much. Great, Joe. Um, as you were presenting the last couple of uh, drugs, with the long-acting Merck drug and then a potentially long-acting Gilead capsid inhibitor, that could be um, maybe a shotgun wedding, but that could be a partner, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. right? Well, I don't know. We've had, obviously, companies have collaborated. The um, the piverine is a collaboration. Uh, even a Favrin's TDF-FTC obviously was a, a collaboration, so I, I don't think it's Im impossible. Um, right. I, I think... A challenge with the capsid inhibitor would be if there isn't an oral form, um, th th there's how how will we develop that as a drug, right? We're we're um, we're used to giving things orally first and make sure they're safe. So so, um, and I know there the people from the FDA probably know better than than me, but you can do kind of microdosing and certain strategies to to um, get some of the safety data that you need. Okay. Um, this question is, do you think we're at a point where we should be checking for baseline integrase resistance mutations or no? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think that, you know, people that have done the modeling suggest that it has to be um, at a certain percentage in the population. I don't think we're there yet, um, especially if we're going to use dolutegravir or bictegravir. I think the one mutation that has been uh, seen at, at kind of low levels, but uh, like in New York, I know they've reported it as the uh, T97A mutation um, that can be a polymorphism and does decrease susceptibility to L-vitegravir, but I think if we're using bictegravir or dolutegravir, I don't think we're there yet. We don't think we need to do it. Uh, do you know, I mean, off the top of your head, uh, the mutations that might be associated with deraberine failure? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I, my memory is that there's a 188 mutation that's been described that gets selected for. Um, I don't know if they've presented data from the head-to-head -head comparison with um, uh, uh, Favrin's as, uh, of those um, six patients that had a virologic rebound, uh, what mutations they selected for. I, I think it might be in the poster, and I can look it up and, and then um, okay. uh, 
let the person know if they want to come find me. And then the question is if that is a 188, <clears throat> the cross resistance with rolpivirine seems like it would probably be likely. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's correct. Okay. Uh, patient resistant to everything, exclamation point. Um, phenotype, sensitive partial to sequinavir, to indinavir, to D4T. Oi. Oh, my um, goodness. What do you, what do you want to do? Uh, yeah, so um, I, I think th that is potentially the patient that might benefit from the sibilizumab. So I, the way I would sort that patient, I, I would look really carefully at that uh, 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 genotype and phenotype. I want to know exactly what integrase mutations the person had. Uh, and then I'd be very curious to know what their CD4 was. Because if they were stable and you could put them on this back, you know, you and I have done this holding regimen. So put them on some sort of holding regimen. Because I, I would prefer if they really don't have a single fully active agent, you'd be better off waiting for fostemzivir to become available and give ibolizumab and fostemzivir. So if their CD4 was relatively high, I might think about some sort of non-integrase holding regimen and, and, and waiting for fostemzivir. I don't know, um, uh, again, maybe someone on the FDA knows, but I don't know if there's going to be an expanded access to fostemzivir, but that, that would be my strategy. Yeah, and one other quick comment, just for those who didn't live through the era of the 90s, um, the phenotypes for D4T or stavidine are not reliable, so you yeah, have to go by point. the genotype. Yeah. And so the fact that it might look susceptible, uh, it probably, as we yeah. say in the South, ain't, ain't susceptible. Yes. So I wanted to say we've come a long way with all our choices. Um, I'm Washington, D.C., Unity Healthcare. My name is Placid. Was there anything about promising microbicides or vaginal uh, rings? Yeah, so so that would be for prevention, and 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 I I do some prevention work, but the um, I think the vaginal ring, the depivirine ring, was presented at Croy. I I, don't, I may have blanked. David, did you present talk about the depivirine ring? So the the depivirine ring um, it had in the randomized comparative trials was about twenty seven percent effective, somewhere between twenty five and thirty percent in two large studies, which really wouldn't be acceptable, I don't think. And, 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 and it was more effective in older women than younger women. Um, at Croy, the, they presented data on um, uh, a follow-on study for the women that um, were um, uh, adherent. They were allowed to continue, and they then looked at um, uh, new HIV infections compared to historical controls. And in those women that were a select population, the success rate, the prevention, was substantially better. Um, with the depivirine ring. It didn't reach what we've seen with oral uh, TDF-FTC, for example, but, but it was substantially better. Uh, my understanding is that the, um, the depivirine ring might be going before the EMA. Do you know this, Mike? Um, no, I, I think it might be going before the European Regulatory Agency, so we'll see. But um, again, it's, I, I don't know how, how does one talk to like a woman uh, uh, about a therapy that is about 60% effective or 50% effective. I'm, I'm not sure how that conversation would go exactly. Yeah. Use condoms. Right. I'm sorry. Um, role Maraviroc in 2018. Well, I think the role of Maraviroc is I would get a, uh, uh, on the patient we heard about two minutes ago, I would tropism. definitely get a tropism assay and find out whether um, the uh, patient has R5 virus still. I think it's a very niche role. It's just for uh, patients in whom it's difficult to construct 
uh, a regimen either due to resistance or toxicity. Miravirx is obviously a very well-tolerated um, therapy uh, with some exceptions uh, with like dizziness or lightheadedness. It's pretty well-tolerated, so it's useful, but, but just in a very small number of people, I think. I'm not sure what this question is exactly. It says effective PPIs on long-acting rolpivirine, but long-acting rolpivirine is mostly injected. But it's injected, so right. there is no effect. So that's one advantage of the long-acting rolpivirine. Obviously, there's no food issue and there's no PPI issue. To, um, so, so it um, absorption. It's all absorption. Right. right. So two questions related. Um, what do you do when you have dolutegravir failure, like resistance? Will bictegravir work? Uh, that's an excellent question. I would say probably not. Um, it, there's a publication, I didn't, I should have included it as a slide, actually, it's very helpful, that looks at the activity of, of bictegravir and dolutegravir. This is in vitro. Um, and they really mirror each other. They're, 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 it, actually, bictegravir might have a little bit more activity against some variants than others, but it's, they really are very, very similar. They're also similar structurally. So. I would think it would be unlikely to, to, to be effective. And, and remember, unfortunately, Bictegravir is only available as a co-formulation. So um, you, you can't give double-dose uh, Bictegravir because you'd end up, well, I guess you could, but, but you'd be giving double-dose TAF and double-dose FTC, which you probably you wouldn't want to You could chop do. the tablet in half. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> or no, dissolve it in your bathtub. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, are there studies of long-acting regimens for PrEP or PEP? Yes, absolutely. So cabotegravir is in uh, several large phase three trials as um, PrEP um, uh, in high-risk women in Africa and in high-risk men in uh, US, uh, in North America, South America, and Asia. I don't know studied for PEP. That's kind of interesting. I guess the problem is we still have that you know, you, you still need the oral therapy for four weeks, so I guess that really wouldn't, wouldn't work as PEP. Now, there are some long-acting injectables that are given without uh, initial oral therapy if you have enough experience. And I know the manufacturers of these two uh, long-acting agents are very interested in not having to have an oral lead-in. Whether that would ever kind of pass either clinical or FDA muster, I don't know. It would be a good question to ask our FDA colleagues. Just on the long-acting rilpivirine, I always, maybe I worry too much, but uh, drug interactions and QT prolongation, and especially in older patients with multiple meds. Yeah, I think that's a good question. Um, you know, rilpivirine is, uh, um, uh, uh, in, in, I didn't, Mike said I was going to show a PK curve. I didn't, but, but with the long-acting injectable, um, it, the concentrations really are in the same kind of range as 25 milligrams. Um, but again, I think it's, with any injectable drug, it's like the steroids that our orthopedic colleagues inject in the joints. You know, people forget, you know, you, you, someone's on a boosted PI and they start having their blood sugars go out of control and you ask them, are there any, any concomitant medicines? They say no. And then you go through the chart and you find out they're getting, you know, triamcinolone injections. So um, people that, I think there is a worry that someone that's getting injections um, uh, might uh, you know, at risk, high, maybe higher risk for drug interactions. I think that's possible. I, I do think that um, there are people that just don't want to take pills. And we have people at our site that have now been on this injectable stuff for uh, well over two years, approaching three years, and they're perfectly happy being on it. But they, they, 
at least at our site, they happen to be younger men for whatever reason. And the final question has to do with, we're not covering it anywhere else, so I'll just throw it out there for you. Okay. Uh, HIV vaccine, and this may be in the context of a preventative, or not preventative, but a uh, therapeutic, perhaps. Yeah, well, so I think there's a large phase 2B study that's being conducted in Africa of a, a, a multi-dose uh, vaccine that combines the um, uh, um, a um, uh, human adenovirus and then an, I think it's an MVA boost, so it's a, a prime and boost. It's, it's being done in high-risk uh, women in Africa, so um, it's not a fully powered phase three trial, but it, it actually has some potential. And then um, I don't know if, uh, if David uh, Hardy mentioned this, but there was an interesting combination of, of vaccine and, and antibody uh, that I guess it was presented at IS by Dan Baruch, suggesting that the, uh, those two combinations might be effective at uh, controlling virus so as a, a therapeutic, as you mentioned, in, in an animal model, but, but we don't have any data yet in, in, right. in humans. Great. Thanks so much, Jeff. Yep. You're Appreciate welcome. It. Yep. So we have two remaining talks, and they're both very uh, timely and interesting.